Right. Oh we have such an upbeat theme song. That's fine. I was, like, <laughs> I was thinking about that, and I was like, well, are we going to start with that? <laughs> well, why don't Maybe. we do the episode and then see yeah. how it feels? Maybe we'll, I'll say at the beginning, excuse our jaunty theme song right now. <laughs> but I also think it is kind of like, we do talk about tough things on our show sometimes, so yeah. we've always had a jaunty theme song. Yeah. And then we'll be like, white supremacy. Like, okay. Yeah, I know. I just feel like we normally start in an upbeat place, and I feel like we're already not, but... No, we can start. We'll, we'll introduce it. We'll talk about the wine really quick. We'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. I'm already recording, so maybe this all just goes in. Maybe, yeah. Maybe you can just edit it around. And there we'll, we go. We'll figure it out. Okay. Welcome to Rosé All Day Anyway. I am Erica Atkins. <laughs> and I'm Katie Rainey. I had an urge to do my little echo there, but it just felt not, not, not appropriate. <laughs> not appropriate. So Katie and I today, we're going to be talking about something that we actually talk about often, which is like the role of white supremacy and male privilege. Is that the, like, is that where we landed on the topic? I mean, Did white I... supremacy, male privilege, anti-racism. Yeah. Fucked up shit that happens in our world. I'll say country, because America always has to, like, take it to, like, level number 10. Oh. Like, yeah. If a country's like, I'm going to be racist, America's like, oh, I'll yeah. show you how fucking racist we can be. Oh, man. I'm just thinking about all the artists who have fled America and created their best work in, like, Europe, Africa, Asia, and, like, then came back here. Anyway, we're... I think we're, I'm getting us off track. No, you're not. We're, we're, we're right, we're right on track. Cause that's, Mm -hmm. that's what the episode is about. Well, we wanted to do this episode. I mean, well, really you wanted to do the episode. I was a little bit hesitant, but we, we have two other episodes that we actually recorded before this on the docket, but we've actually pushed those back and we're going to do our best to get this out um, in the next couple of days. But the last two weeks have been pretty rough, and that's why we wanted to do an episode in response to that. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, just in case you've never seen us and you don't follow our social media, why are you, you should. <laughs> you should. We're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. What's our handle? Oh, it's no, different I'm, on all three of those platforms. I got to tell you, I have not been on social media for like a month and a half, and it's been great. Okay, that's not helpful in this moment. It's rosé all day anyway. Thank you. As I'm trying to encourage people. I'm sorry. Get off social media, but also check ours out. (laughs) Um, For those of you who don't know, I'm a black woman. Katie is a white woman. So another reason why we wanted to have this conversation, we know that a lot of people are struggling with how to have this conversation. So we'll get into that in a moment. First, we are still going to do wine time, damn it. Yeah, we're trying to make it. I don't know what we're trying to make it. We're not Something. trying to make it anything. We're just, we're drinking wine as we do. Because you can talk about. You can talk about, yeah. And like, still be yourself. Um, you don't have to transform into something else. Mm-hmm. And a big part of 
who we are, drinking wine. <laughs> and talking about the white patriarchy. <laughs> it is, it's something we do a lot. Um, so today for wine time, we're actually drinking a wine that we had before on this show, maybe like a year ago. There was like that wine bottle with the rooster on it. I'm not going to read it out loud. I'm not going to butcher the French in this moment. But the wine bottle with the rooster on it, and off the top of my head, I'm going to assume that the bottle is from 2018. Yeah, or we, 20, we can. I think 19. we can. Oh yeah, 2019 at this point. Maybe, maybe. it's either maybe it's 2018. And when I drink of this wine, I think of um, dismantling racism. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. I think of examining whiteness. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So that was wine time. Yeah. That was one time. Super great. Good job, Erica. <laughs> All right. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm I'm okay. Katie and I were just talking about this offline, but um, I have developed, and I think most people of color, but black people specifically, have developed so many coping mechanisms to deal with when, like, a lot of flagrantly and subtly racist things happen in the world that this feels like a moment where people are paying attention in a way that they haven't Mm. in a very long time, maybe almost never, but definitely not for a long time. And that can be emotional if you've already started to develop the coping mechanism because that's when, you know, if anything gets held up in your face that it's something that is difficult for you to deal with, you can't... It's not that I hide from it at all, but, like, I can very quickly, like, be like, like, for example, talk to me, like, a month and a half ago when all of those white dudes were standing out in front of, you know, the Capitol building in Wisconsin with AK-47 demanding mm. haircut. My, like, I remember having a lot of, like, white friends be like, oh, my God, that's, like, that's very alarming. And I was like, oh, I grew up in Virginia. I just, if I got like that worked up every time I saw like white men with like machinery, I wouldn't, I wouldn't survive. Like you're right, that is like alarming, like white supremacy, and also I have to move through this quickly or I can't survive because stuff like this mm-hmm. actually happen fairly often. It's just getting caught on camera right now, or even when uh, the White Lives Matter protests were happening in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. I also like moved past that really quickly actually interestingly the thing i became most fixated on was the amount of tiki torches that they had like the logistics of like what it took for them to get that many and to light them all up and like no one ever said anything like why was no one alarmed and that many black people had tiki torches like that would have they would have been like that's not right like Someone would have caught that before yeah. it happened. I was like, just as a person who planned the event, the logistics of that, it's just, like, you're so committed to racism. Did Tiki Torches release a statement like every other Yeah, they released a statement, has? like, the next day. Saying, it, like, we don't. We don't. And, and as a person who works in communication, then I started imagining, like, you know, someone got a call at, like, midnight being like, hey, these dudes were, like, protesting, like, the White Lives Matter with Tiki Torches. And they were like, oh, fuck, we got to release a statement. And then, like, everyone, like, had to have, like, a 9 a.m. phone call. They probably got the one black guy who works in the company to make sure, like, 
oh no, like his opinion was in there. And they went through a whole thing. Like, that's what my brain fixated on instead of the racism itself. And I recognize, I think that's like a coping mechanism yeah. because if I, like, if I did, like, you know, I'm from Virginia and Charlottesville, Virginia. Like, how would I, how would I live? Mm-hmm. Like, how would I survive? Same with being a woman. There are things that go with being a woman. If I really thought about it a lot, how could I live my life? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like just a lot more of that is being held up to me right now in the look of, like, concern in especially, like, my white friend's eyes and, like, the love um, that they want to give or the things that they're bringing up or how many posting people are doing on it, mm-hmm. um, the videos, the content, it's so, it, you know, that that gets emotional for me. But, like... You mean it's hard when your white friends do that to you? It's not necessarily... It's not hard as in, like... It's like if somebody in my family dies mm-hmm. and a bunch of people start sending me, I'm so sorry, text messages. Yeah. I'm happy to hear from you, but every single one of those messages are hard, too. Could they mm-hmm. remind me again and again what happened? Or if I had a breakup. And, like, I'm happy. Thank you for checking in on me, and I'm glad you care. Also, this is, like, the fourth time you checked in on me today. And it just keeps reminding me that I just had a breakup. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. like, it, it feels... Does it, it feel like a little that. bit false to you? With my friends, no. There mm-hmm. are people who I have seen posting stuff that I know I don't consider them a part of my circle, mm-hmm. but I know them, and I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if you would like to give me to give you a hit of, list of some of your like problematic behaviors just so you know exactly what you need to be working so on. So you don't think they're doing the work is what you're saying. I know that they haven't done the work. Yeah. They might be doing it now. I can't judge that. I don't have a conversation with them. I don't know mm-hmm. if there are people of color in their life that they're close to and they're talking to. I don't know that. I can't judge that. And I won't know unless I ask them. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it's interesting because it'll be like, oh, that's the first time I've ever really seen you care about this that much. Like, I have seen that. With my friends, I do not doubt their sincerity or that they're genuine i think some people don't know where to start and they don't think there's anything they can do but i don't i don't doubt anyone's sincerity mm-hmm. and some of my friends have already been doing the work you know so and and and, and therefore like like i have one friend who's like no i'm not gonna like reach out to like all my black friends right now like you know what i mean it's kind of like I don't always post every time something happened to an oppressed group that's not me. Yeah. I've thought about that because I know sometimes people will say, well, if you're not posting, you don't care. I'm like, mm, I don't always post every time because I don't want to get caught up in a, like, who's woke comment and, like, 10 other people. Yeah, like, just virtue posted signaling. this article on Facebook. And, like, if I don't have, like, an original take on it and I'm just, like, posting the article itself... What's the, what's the point? And I choose maybe not to post sometimes, but, like, I think everybody who knows me knows that through my arts education and, like, social justice work, I am actively working to try to dismantle systems. And in my leadership, I'm trying to constantly evaluate ways that I hold up mm-hmm. white supremacy and then also trying to parse apart where can I take risk? Is it worth taking the risk? You know, just constantly trying to, like, evolve myself in that area. Because at the end of the day, 
in my leadership, the thing I struggle with is that, you know, I'm one of the people who runs an organization. I'm specifically in charge of the infrastructure. Um, and there are some things if we don't do them, we might get shut down. So uh, even if we don't agree with it. So, like, how do, you know, just trying to, like, figure that out and figure out then how much leeway I have. I'm constantly doing that work, and people know that about me. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like one of my friends hasn't posted anything online, but is literally going to grad school to get a doctorate in education um, to specifically study on how to make the education system more equitable and accessible to all children. Yeah, okay, you don't post anything, you don't reach out to me. Specifically for that, you reach out to me because we text almost every day. But for the, yeah, no, I know what you're doing. You know what I mean? So I don't necessarily think, for me, I know not everybody feels this way, so I am not the mouthpiece for all black people right now. But for me specifically, when if, if I, I don't know, I haven't necessarily thought, oh, because you didn't reach out to me, it didn't mean you're not doing anything and you don't care. Yeah. But I do take note of like people who continue to do and say things that are problematic. Mm-hmm. So, like, people who are like, ah, the looting. Like, I see that. Mm. I am noting that more so mm. than, like, you didn't do anything at all. Like, ah, oh, that's what you're going to choose to obsess over. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So, that's where I am. It's like a, you know, evolving process. But it can be, it can be difficult to deal with because I feel like for some people this is a newer moment yeah. and for me this is my whole life mm-hmm. yeah even though even though I did grow up with economic privilege for sure but even then like there's a feeling I have that like uh, I think a great example is I was down at my parents' house in Virginia a couple weeks ago my parents live in the neighborhood I grew up in but not the house I grew up in but I mean, I, I have been in around and that neighborhood for 20, 20, 25 years. My family's been there. And I was outside checking my phone. And they only have, my parents only have two spots in the driveway. And their car went there. It was late at night. Just come back from a friend's place. Looking at my phone. And um, I had a moment where I thought, oh, right. Everybody in this part of the neighborhood doesn't necessarily know that those are my parents and I'm outside of their house and I'm not in the driveway right now. And so I don't want anybody to be like, who is this black person sitting here right now? Because it's a predominantly white neighborhood. It's more diverse than it was when I was growing up, but still overall predominantly white. And I just didn't want there to be an issue. So like really quick, I just like, oh, let me get out of the car. Let me go in the house and I'll finish checking my phone in the house. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a thought that I had. But then it reminded me, like, there's been so much conversation about what children know and don't know. When we were young, like, uh, what were they calling it? The white supremacy movement? The, the, what were they calling it in the 90s? It was like... Ter- it was KKK? Domestic, no, it was like domestic terrorism specifically. There was like the Oklahoma City bombing. Oh. Like, there was like... I think that that's right, domestic terrorism. It was, yeah, it was domestic. They didn't call it white nationalism then, though. They had a different name for it, and I can't remember it right now. But it was like, it was a movement in the mid-90s. Uh, white power? 
Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't exactly white power. I don't feel comfortable saying those words on this podcast. <laughs> okay. right I'm now. glad you don't feel comfortable. If you were like, "Ooh, I feel right at home saying white power," oh, I'd be God. like, "Okay, all right." Well, I'm gonna go. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna take Rosetta. I don't need anybody taking these sound bites, and, like <laughs> making them into something else. Okay, continue, please. <laughs> but um, so there was a big like domestic terrorism movement. Mm-hmm. The white nation, the Aryan nation, that's what it was called. Oh, okay. um, there was like a big Aryan nation movement. And part of that was skinhead. And yeah. I must have been, I was like seven, eight, nine, ten. But I knew what that was. And I knew that was a thing. Mm-hmm. And so every white man I saw with a bald head, I thought was a skinhead. Yeah. And I thought wanted to kill me and my family. Yeah. And um, I remember it was the 90s. So our moms left us in the car. There's no shame in that. You you know, you saw another kid in the car next to you and you waved at them. That's what my mom did. And my sister and I would be in the car and I explained, I told my sister, I was like, okay, because I'm older and I know everything. I'm like, bald white men want to kill black people. <laughs> Sorry, Brittany, for whatever psychological damage they may have called you, called you. And we would duck in the car uh-huh. if we saw like a bald white man mm-hmm. or like I would grab her near me, like... I thought all bald white men wanted to kill me, and I was like eight. So, like the the thing about being outside the car at like thirty four, or being in the car at thirty four, in the town in the neighborhood I grew up in, and being like, oh god, someone might spot me and say something, and it'll become a thing. And then thinking about being a child and being like, all bald white men want to kill me. Like, this is this has always been a part of my life, and I've always just been coping with it. And so I think that's an important thing for people to recognize right now, mm-hmm. that this is not new for us. We're not realizing something new, that it's not an awakening. Like, black people have been dealing with the reality of what it means to be black in America for a very long time. Yeah. I, I feel interesting right now is the word that I'm going to use. Because, okay. well, one, I, I've just been thinking that, like, we didn't even start this conversation by saying, like, this week have been the protests against the murder of George Floyd and this, I think, I think more than talking about white supremacy, this episode is about Black Lives Matter. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, I think that means more to us than saying like it's about talking about white supremacy. Sure. And also, I just, I, you know, I felt, I felt odd this week. Like, does the world need another white lady sitting here talking about this right now? But I also understand it's important, and and we wanted to, we wanted to have this conversation just to like, I don't know, illustrate something like. We have this conversation constantly, and in fact, like, that might be why this already feels like the start of this episode was jumping halfway in a conversation that we were already having, because we already were. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's interesting. But I did also want to add that, uh, well, you, there were two things. The first one was that we are breaking quarantine right now, um, and yeah. we didn't say that, but the next two episodes that people will hear are remote because we have been remote this is about what three months into quarantine but no we're not even in quarantine anymore now. yeah technically not technically new york is opening up a little bit so yeah. i just want i wanted to call that this out this is our say, first episode that we've done in a while where we are physically sitting in the same room we have already been in the same yeah. room together several times at this point but this is our first episode that we're recording in the same room yeah but i actually wanted to say that for uh, a point because it is June and that means it's Pride Month and it's interesting right now. Pride is not 
Pride Month right now. And if you don't know what Pride Month is, go check out the go look up the Stonewall riots of 1969. Last year with the 50th anniversary. Yeah, and yeah. this is the 50th anniversary of the parade this year. But obviously, like Pride is not like any organization that you know runs pride in new york or anything has has turned the attention to the black lives matter movement specifically the black trans lives matter black Mm. queer lives matter so okay i said that i I just wanted to uh, say like we are breaking quarantine but one thing that i'm feeling a lot as i walk around new york so i know it's happening elsewhere if it's happening here is that people are not wearing their masks and stuff anymore which is incredibly frustrating because uh thinking specifically of like those masks are not just for you. They're for the other people and thinking I'm thinking in particular of like black lives and black trans lives and black queer lives who are discriminated against in the medical profession a lot. So by not wearing a mask, you're jeopardizing their lives and then they end up getting COVID and going into the hospital uh, where they like, and that's just a really bad place for, for folks in those bodies to be right now. So I, I did want to acknowledge that we are mm-hmm. breaking quarantine, but you and I are also taking like every measure outside of like my home and your home. We haven't seen anyone else. We're wearing our mask every time we exit, you know, hand washing and stuff. That stuff is really all still important even during this time. So I wanted to call that out. But also you said one interesting thing when you were talking, and I think it's a question for both of us. Mm-hmm. You you said how white supremacy was in like what practices you were doing, which I think is a really interesting thing to call out to people that like white supremacy infiltrates everywhere. And so like Erica is sitting here examining ways in which like you have had white supremacy infiltrate your practice. So, of course, like I have to sit here and examine like constantly how like. Just because you think, I guess what I'm saying is just because you think you're not racist doesn't mean that it hasn't infiltrated your body in some way, no matter who you are. Mm-hmm. Because we live in this country that it is was built on, you know? And so dismantling it is a constant, ongoing process that doesn't just, like, happen from one, like, anti-racist workshop or something, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's a constant re-examining, uh, you know, for white folks like me of your whiteness mm-hmm. and how that plays out constantly mm-hmm. how does that look for you well particularly being a director of a program because I am you know I had to when I became the director like constantly think about like and I still feel a little bit uncomfortable especially during the doing the program that I do which is so focused at this point like when I took over it became very POC centered and about bringing in more social justice practices and stuff but I now have to constantly question, like, am I the right person in this position? Am I the right person to do this work? And I think not forever is the answer that I have to, that, like, I won't be in this position forever. And I hope I'm laying the groundwork for uh, a person of color to take my position when I leave eventually, which, oh, my God, I didn't think that I would say that on the air. I'm kind of fucking myself, aren't I, a little bit? But just in, in terms of leaving a job I mean well I mean you said you won't be in that position forever so whatever yes whatever whatever that that means means yeah Mm -hmm. well I won't so that's fair to say Mm -hmm. but so I mean that's just that's the immediate thing that came to my mind but I mean there there are constant ways like I have I know that I have grown and changed a lot and I think it's okay to acknowledge that and it's okay to acknowledge where I've had 
pitfalls and failures. Like, I think, I think the thing that people get caught up on right now is like cancel culture. You know what I mean? Like somebody yeah. says one wrong thing and they're like canceled forever. I get really, I actually get really frustrated by cancel culture. Yeah. And well, I, you know, I just, I thought about this episode a lot before we got on here and like what I had to offer and say, and I think the one thing that I've noticed, because I have been, I was talking to my friend who is white the other day, and we've had a lot of white people come to us and ask, like, is this okay to post? Is this okay to say? I'm like, how did we become, like, some kind of, I, I don't know. Anyway, that, that's not the point. But the point is that I told all those people, like, I can't tell you. Like, you're going to have to figure this out, and you're going to make a mistake, and you got to be okay with that. And what you got to do is pick yourself up and apologize for whatever you did learn from it and move on and keep doing the work like you're gonna fuck up especially if you're white and you just have to get comfortable with that I mean and I certainly have so you're gonna fuck up if you're not white yeah absolutely like I mean like with any culture right like we're not all experts in every culture so I'm sure there's there's something that we're gonna say or do that's wrong and within my own and within and within black culture like, I think that the, I am not absolved from that just because I am black. And that's something that I remember, yeah. especially because I'm in a position of power and especially because I grew up with economic privilege. I am not absolved from that yeah. because I'm black. Well, I think that's a really good point because we're both cisgender women, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have, I'm having dealing with this interesting thing where I don't want to focus so much on whiteness, but it is important to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to find this interesting balance here but yeah I mean definitely like being cisgender like women we have to examine that constantly and like how are we how are we having being the privilege of being in a body that we were born with that we identify with you know how are we navigating this world and potentially hurting others right so it's well, the, at same, the thing. same time dealing with all the disadvantages that we have because we were naturally born into that body as well true and it which is like it's such a mind fuck. Like if you actually start thinking about it, it's, yeah. it's, it's such a mind fuck. Yeah. Yeah. But to that point, there are things or systems that I may uphold or things I don't even think about because I was, you know, born as female and still identify as that both mm-hmm. biologically and culturally. And then I just, there are things that I, I just don't even think about, but I'm hyper aware of all the ways that I am disadvantaged because I was born into that body. I've mm-hmm. always had that body. And there are things that will physically happen to me where I can, like, you know. I think, for example, a lot about the fact because I am a black woman, I may have, if I do have a biological child, I may have a horrific childbirth story. I might. Wait, what do you mean? Uh, so there is, there's been a lot of research, and it is true done around the fact that um, as you were talking about how there's bias against black transgendered black queer people but also just black people period in mm-hmm. the medical system one of which for black women specifically how that sometimes translates mm-hmm. is that the only way I can really describe it is that people think you can handle more than, mm-hmm. than you can mm-hmm. um, they don't believe your pain they yeah. don't believe your pain they're like oh well she could like push out that baby it might be too big for her It'll be fine. She can push it out. And then it leads to a situation where you have, like, these 
horrific childbirth experiences because mm. they weren't ignoring your pain. They should have done. They were ignoring your pain. You should have gotten a C-section. You should have like, you. It's like it's actually kind of terrifying to think about. Like as a brown woman who might carry a baby, one day two of the like most horrific birth stories I know are black women. Do you know? I think that's rooted in this. Like, I mean, like you're saying it right now. Like you are young and healthy, and so luckily have never had to be in like a hospital or anything for an extended period of time, mm-hmm. right? And so I think the immediate thing that you are worried about is childbirth, where you know you will have to go go into the hospital. And, like, you know you will face, like, what I was talking about, like, systemic racism in the medical field. So, yeah, I just have to have somebody. I have to be really, what what always helps me, personally, is that my dad works in the medical field, and my dad is a paramedic. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know if he's, I'm realizing this now, I don't think he's ever, like, articulated this to me. But, like, if I have to go into the hospital for something, or if I, something, I'm going to the doctors for something, I call my dad. Mm-hmm. And he knows that I'm going, and he tells me all of the questions that I need to ask. And if it sounds like I'm not getting a clear answer or something not happening, my father is on standby, and I can call him. One time I went to the emergency room while my parents were on vacation in Key West. One time. Couldn't get a hold of my father the entire time. Like, the entire, like, five hours, like, in and out of the emergency room. And he was furious when he realized afterwards he thinks they should have given me an MRI he had like a list of things that he thought a shelf crashed into my head but I was wondering what happened year 2014 everything terrible happened to me one of which at one point a shelf crashed into my head and my dad was like they should have given you an MRI like they don't know if you're still bleeding like he had like a list of concerns mm-hmm. that he had but I realized again it's my privilege to know that, that my dad works in, in the field. And so he, he's been a para, he was a paramedic for like 25 years. He's got a whole list of questions that he prepared to give us. When we were a kid, dad went to all of our doctor's appointments with mm-hmm. us, all of them. And we make fun of him for it a lot, that he'll like lay out his medical history to the doctor. But in retrospect, I'm realizing that's partially him being like, and I know what I'm talking about, so you can't bullshit us. Mm. You know? Like... But I worry, like, I don't live near my parents. My dad isn't an OBGYN. Like, yeah. you know, like, what, what, what should I be worried about? So, like, mm-hmm. like that's the kind of thing where when I, when I think about, you know, being a cisgendered woman who may give birth to a child one day, like, I'm like, oh, shit. Fuck, that's good. that may or may not be a thing, yeah. you know? Um, but the mortality rate for black women in childbirth is higher. Yeah. Yeah, as in pretty much everything, like heart mm-hmm. disease is rampant in the, in the black community, and a lot of those come from stress-related. And also the way that we um, historically, so back in slavery, the food that we got mm-hmm. was the, um, the dinner scraps from the table. And so if you think of things that became like, the food that black people eat culturally and historically is just like a lot of like fat, like the, mm-hmm. like the not healthy part of the food, at least black people in America. So like black American food. And predominantly food deserts in this country are found in communities of brown and black yeah. folks. So like all those things between the stress, between the food, mm-hmm. um, but the fact that it's genetic. And COVID. I, COVID. I know that I have to watch out because um, high blood pressure Friends in my family. Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting thing right there. I mean, we were talking before we got on air about inherited trauma, and mm-hmm. I think that can come in different forms, and high blood pressure might be one of them, right? right? 
I feel like I have so much, <laughs> so much inherited trauma. Like I don't even like, like I know that I know that my father's mother was hospitalized at one point for mental health. I think maybe mm-hmm. twice. So like I'm aware that there's a, a trait in my family. Um, ultimately she died of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I know and, and my father's sister actually had mental health issues, understandably, after her son passed away. She just never recovered from that, her only child. But, like, I know that there's, like, a line in my family that, like, there's a line that could break you because, mm-hmm. like, mental health issues are a thing in my family. But I think black people are kind of taught not to deal with their mental health issues. Yeah. Like I was saying before, like, if I had to deal with this, I don't know if I said this on air or off air. Like, if I had to deal with this every day, I would I would lose it. I would, like, how could I, how could I, like, live day to day if I was really, like, just constantly, like, thinking about that. I think that when, like, black people, black women in particular, all black people, but I do think there's, like, that strong black woman archetype. Mm-hmm. You're, you, you got to be strong. You got to move on. You got to be supportive. You got to be there. Like, and I come from, I mean, I come from a black southern military family. There are several different layers there of, like, you just grit your teeth and bear it. Mm-hmm. Like, and that is what it is. And that's kind of what I was trained to do. And so I spent a lot, maybe three to four years, trying to figure out how to be vulnerable and open and honest and toe the line between doing that and still taking care of myself because mm-hmm. the whole compartmentalizing, closing off, shutting down thing, it was working per se, but like also didn't seem to be a great way to live either. Yeah. And it was when I, and it was when I like had my first panic attack that I like realized, oh, 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 there's like a, there's a thing going on. And it was while I was reading an article on the train about um, somebody wrote an, a Medium article back in February 2017. I think we all remember the lawless days of Trump's first 100 days in office. I feel like it's all, it's been lawless ever since then. Not that it like, like everything was together before, but we could at least like pretend could Barack Obama had such a nice voice it could speak in full sentences. Oh yeah, I mean, there's so many experts that say this is like the last battle cry of like the white patriarchy. Yeah, falling. they're really, nah, they're really going in on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was reading an article that was like listing historically speaking, like if we're moving towards a dictatorship or some like massive like genocide, I think like if that's what's about to happen here just based on what has happened, here is the group of people who should be really paying attention to what's going on so that, like, you know when it's time to go. Mm-hmm. And, like, number, like, two was black people. Yeah. And it, and it like, you know, the article shared the reasons why. And I'm on the train, and it was, you know, going from the 145th Street stop all the way down to High Street. So it's a long train ride for those who don't know. New York City, it's like a 45-minute to an hour train ride, it's just, and you're just on that train. And part of it is you're going from 125th Street to 59th Street. So if something happens, you actually, like, can't get off the train. Yeah. So with, during this stretch, that I, the 125th to 59th Street, I start feeling hot while I'm reading it. 
but I keep trying to read it anyways. I'm not recognizing that this thing is triggering me. And I'm like, okay. And then um, I'm like taking off my coat. And then I start taking off my scarf. And then I realize like that I can't like really breathe very well. And then I'm like, and, and the thing is why I didn't recognize that panic attack was coming is the feeling you get right before you have a panic attack. Mm-hmm. I've had that many, 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 many times in my mm-hmm. life. And I always managed to squash it before it like it blows up. So I didn't realize until it was blowing up what was happening. And so I'm like taking off my scarf. I'm like, and then I'm like, I, I finally realized, I think it's the article. And I put my phone away, but it's already started. And I'm on the train and I like, there's no stops. And I know I'm at like 96th Street and we're not getting off till 59th. And like, in maybe the most Erica Atkins faction, I turn around and look at the woman behind me who I could see kind of like looking at me out the side of her eye. And I go, I think I'm having a panic attack. And she goes, mm, I thought that what might be happening. I've had it before. And she's like trying to like talk me through breathing. That's why I love New York. I know. I know. It's the best. And then this guy ends up giving me his seat so that like I can sit because I was trying to figure out do I need to get off the train at 59th Street? I'm just going to have to be late for my meeting and like whatever. And he ended up giving me his seat so I was able to like calm down and get to work. But just like, like that was the beginning of me starting to realize, Mm. oh, ah. I have a lot of probably unhealthy coping mechanisms in place. Yeah. And they're starting to blow up on me now. Yeah. Man, I just want to say, because we all miss New like New York right now. Like, we miss New York. We're here, but we miss it. That, I like, do, yeah. Like, everybody says that if you've, you have, you're not a real New Yorker until you've been here 10 years or something like that. But I think you're not a real New Yorker until you have that breakdown on the train and are comforted by a stranger. Or you deal with a building fire. Or you get bed bugs. I'm actually just thinking of things that have happened to me. happened to you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I have a question. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was trying to... I had a question that I forgot. I had to pee everyone really bad, and then Erica had to get more wine. Which Are I we putting that in the episode? Yeah, let's... Katie that's, had to pee. Yeah, okay. let's, let's go on in. I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed. We're, we're still human, after all. Yeah. Um, so, Katie, what is it that makes you nervous? Oh, I want to pause. The rosé is in front of me now. It is the 2019, to clarify. Okay. So, Katie, what is it that makes you nervous or makes you pause around talking about whiteness? Oh, I don't... You mean today? Just like in gen, like when you have that instinct, because I don't... I don't... I will never have that yeah. instinct. And so I want to know... Like, what is that? Oh, well, I, let me just caveat that in case I didn't clarify at the beginning. Like, I don't have a problem coming on here and talking about, like, my own whiteness. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like I there is a point where I've, like, crossed in the last few years where I'm like, oh, okay, like, white supremacy, like, runs through my blood. I have to actively fight against it. Like, it's what I was raised on. Not of, of not intentionally for, like, my family or anything, not to call them out in that way. I don't think it's intentional. I think it's inherited, like, mm-hmm. just, like, inherited trauma. But I don't have a problem talking about that. And I will talk about how I got to that point because I, I honestly, I think that's important. It was a, a breakthrough moment for me. And I think uh, I think for a lot of white folks I know who might be like uncomfortable examining this and talking about this openly with people, it just illustrates a point. But no, I, I just meant today I, was un- I, I wasn't sure I was uncomfortable coming on. I really thought about this episode a lot because I was like, Okay, Erica wants to do this, so I'm going to do this with her. What do I have to offer? 
that's not just me like being like another white voice out there because like I, I really think it's a, it is a time where like like white people need to shut the fuck up mm. you know so and again like going back to the social media thing that you said like I'm not on social media like I'm not I'm not posting anything doesn't mean I'm not sitting here to do the work I'm just like not like virtue signaling to all my white friends like how good of a white person I am because I post this article you know what I mean so, which, I mean, that's a whole other episode. Yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole other episode because I have mixed feelings about that because I think people may yeah. listen or respond to you in a way that they don't respond to me. Yeah. And that's the thing that, like, I want to have conversations about is that cancel culture because I'm like, how, like, I think this is why so many white people are afraid to, like, talk about this because sure. they think they're going to get canceled or at least, like, I, I would say, like, liberal folks that we're hanging out with. Yeah. I mean, I've witnessed, I've witnessed white people try to say something or talk through something. I've been, been in a session where people are like, I want the white people to talk more. Mm-hmm. And then, like, as soon as they talk, someone's like, I'll tell you another thing. And I was like, well, I get why you don't want to... I, I get... I would be really nervous about speaking, too. Like, yeah. because, like... I, you, you know the history is, like... You know the history is screwed up. And you know that you probably play some role in it hereditarily mm-hmm. or yourself mm-hmm. and you're like trying to like work it through. I think that's where affinity groups can come into play to help oh, white people. We, we've made jokes all week about we white affinity groups. We have made groups. a lot of group jokes about <laughs> white affinity groups. Because um, you know what's a white affinity group? What's a white, what? You said it this week. What's a white affinity group out there, Erica? <laughs> I did. I said the KKK. Yeah, like we got to stop. Like, it's, Okay, for those of you who don't understand, there are a lot of, a lot of like very well-meaning white people out there. And I have been a part of some of these groups because, uh, you know, it, it, some of these groups uh, take it upon themselves to say like white people need to be doing the work without people of color in the room, without like putting it on people of color. They need to figure out their own shit without putting in, uh, more of that on people of color but unfortunately in this time i don't mean to make a joke about it i'm getting a lot of emails of like will you join my white affinity group and i feel very uncomfortable about that because we we just need we need a better name for it okay like anyway that was i didn't mean to derail you i'm wondering what is a better name for it I, i don't know but it's kind of like I feel like there should be a better word for privilege, but I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, that's no. Just giving context. No. But to that, I guess to that point, though, like, I certainly also don't want to police anybody's tone ever. Like, if you're angry because you're talking about, like, injustice that has been done to you or, like, what you've faced or, like, you know, I felt it myself when I started talking about it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not here to police anybody's tone. But it is interesting when I've seen people try to, like, bring stuff up in a group and they get shut down or, like, whatever. I'm like, I don't I don't understand. And maybe this is, um, we were talking offline about healing. Maybe that's where healing comes into play. I don't understand how we're supposed to move forward mm-hmm. if we don't. Like, I want to I know what it is that makes you feel co- uncomfortable. I want to know what it is yeah. that you're dealing with. I need, I need to understand, like, various perspectives. I need to understand your perspective as much as you need to understand mine. Because the only time meaningful change had been made is when, and lasting change is when people do that, when they actually open up to understanding other people's perspectives. So I, need, I, don't, I don't know what it's like to be a white person and um, 
question if you're saying or doing the right thing when it comes to race. I do know what it's like to be a leader and feel like you're not being inclusive. I do know that feeling. And so in some ways, maybe I can relate to parts of it. But like, I, I, yeah, I, it's just always like, I always, I wish, I just wish people would talk more about it without victimizing themselves. Like, I think that's where people need to be able to like start talking about it without going into what, um, what what oppression they've faced is that what you're talking about yeah the oppression they face the fact that they're like i'm just trying to convince people not all white people are bad oh god or like um um megan mccain the queen of the karen yeah she recently could um george w bush came out with a anti-racism statement i'm sure he did which i'm like bush is all about he's like i'm not the worst the last worst Republican president. He's like riding that wave. And also he loved Michelle Obama. I think he did it for Michelle. Yeah, but we can't forget the Iraq war. We cannot forget the Iraq war. I mean, I'll never point. forget it. My uncle died in it. Yeah. But like, uh, it is interesting that he, you know, is like coming out strong against it. So he released a statement and Meghan McCain, I don't know if everybody knows this, John McCain had a daughter who's adopted who is brown, I think, I cannot remember what country she's from, though, so I apologize for that. She's not, I don't think she's black, though. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's, like, African-American. I think I think she's from another country. But there were rumors that Karl Rove totally, like, designed during the 2000 primary that, like, John McCain had an affair with a black woman that was his bastard child. And that was, like, a rumor. They, like, go through the network. So Meghan McCain... I did not know this. Yeah. Meghan McCain takes George W. Bush's statement, and she's like, while we're revisiting history, why don't we talk... I think you owe an apology to my sister, or why don't we revisit something that's, like, very personal, and I think you, like, owe an apology to my sister. And I'm going to be like, Meghan, did you make this about you, too? Like, at least let your sister make the statement. Wow. Like, your sister should be the one to say that. Yeah. you. Damn it. Megan McCain, even you made this about you. God damn it. But, like, it's, like, it, it, when, like, I think my, my pet peeve starts to become when it becomes about yeah. the, that person or yeah. when people are, like, afraid to say, like, black or, like, Latinx. Like, when people are just afraid to say it. I once had a conversation with a woman who was trying really, really hard not to say she worked with black children, and it was... I wanted to start laughing because it was just so obvious. She's like, and I work in Florida in a community that's mostly underserved in the neighborhood, the historically oppressed. She just kept saying all this stuff, and I wanted to be like, are they, are they black? Yeah. Like, are they are they brown people? (laughs) Like, what are you, what are you not trying to say to me right now that I need you to just name? That's when I get frustrated. But like. I'm. I am actually interested in hearing about other, pers- like how how you approach it, or, or where you're coming from, and what your history is with it, because it might, in some ways, help me be able to better like relate and maybe not be so angry. Like to actually well, just yeah. be able to listen. You, you know? know what you're saying right here is the thing that I've thought that I had to offer in this conversation is like that moment for me and like talking about it because that actually happened to me. I would say about. 
five years ago. Mm -hmm. Like I've been doing like anti-racist work for a while before that and like have lived in other countries, encountered uh, POC folks from all, all, all cultures. But I think like, I think I had a real breakthrough moment when even though I was doing all this work and this is what this is this is what I felt like I had to offer to the conversation because mm-hmm. I was like what else like am I going to say other than talk about the moment where I identified the uncomfortable feeling within me and mm-hmm. rather than shut it down and hide it which I think a lot of white people tend to do like oh no I can't look at that because if I admit that then everybody's going to cancel me everybody's going to hate me whatever blah 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 so that uncomfortable feeling where like I actually so Oh, maybe it was four years ago. Okay, it was four years ago. It was the day after the election. So the day after the election, I was teaching our first class of the year at the school that I teach in now, that I've been teaching in for a number of years. Um, and at the time, I had a, a co-partner who was a woman of color. And, you know, the night of the election, she and I were on the phone planning this whole thing, like, we're going to have first woman president tomorrow, yada, yada. And then, like, at 3 a.m., we were texting each other, and we are like, like upset but anyway that's a side it so the next day we go in our lesson plan totally changes obviously and we're talking about certain things our class our second class was pretty rowdy and not paying attention to us and they were worked up about the election and they were just like kind of all over the place and my partner got everybody's attention she was she was really frustrated she got everybody's attention and she said you know what I need you all to understand why I do this work because she was frustrated with the students because they were just like all over the place and not listening to her, which I totally get. But she was like, I need you to understand why I do this work. And she, she was a photographer and a filmmaker. And she was like, I do this work because I didn't see myself represented in magazines, in uh, photographers, in filmmakers. I just, I didn't see myself. So I wanted, I wanted to be that. And she gave this like really lovely speech to the students and like everybody was just focused on her and uh and then suddenly she was like Katie's gonna tell you why she does this work and I like froze for a second because like didn't expect that and I was like oh shit like how can I possibly like especially as like a white person like follow that and then I think it's like really good that that happened to me because suddenly like all my defense mechanisms just kind of like went away and like I got really fucking vulnerable with my students And I was like, you know what, like, I am a white woman in front of you all. And the reason that I do this work is because I come from an inherently racist background. I come from the deep South. I heard racial slurs often as a child. Our town is pretty segregated still. There is even like Central High, which Central High and Little Rock, which had the Little Rock Nine is fucking segregated. Like I have a few friends who teach there and like, all the white kids are in the honor classes and all the POC students are not. They're in the regular classes. Like, it's still segregated there. So, like, this is the place that I grew up and I want to not be that way and I want to combat that and I want to fight against that, like, every day. And then my, like, I, I don't know, like, something happened. I can't remember everything that I said, but it was the first time that I actually admitted that, like, I came from a place where I heard those things. Mm-hmm. I never in my 20s admitted that. Mm-hmm. I was always like, no, 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 no. I've never experienced anyone who I know is racist or in, in habits like white supremacy in any way in their bodies. 
uh, to any degree. And like I had been coming to terms to that up to the moment, but I had never like admitted that out loud and especially out loud in front of a bunch of like 15 year olds. But what happened was I had a few students like start crying and then they started asking me questions and they got really curious and they wanted to know more and they wanted to understand more. And it was like this really beautiful moment that we had. And like I recognized that healing was happening because I sat there and like admitted the shit that I was scared of Mm -hmm. in my past. I don't know. Like I, I think that like so now what I do when I feel that uncomfortable thing when you know when anything like racism comes up and if I feel something uncomfortable that's the thing that I hold on to and I explore and I'm like why am I feeling uncomfortable in this moment and that's the thing that I need to bring up and discuss and like we often talk about I mean that's why that we're fucking sitting here right now mm-hmm. you know I was uncomfortable earlier this week I was like do I really need to be like a voice that's out there right now at all and like even if you know we only have so many listeners like still like do I need to be the voice that they hear right now but and and maybe not I think for some people yes though like that feeling you're talking about I don't I don't have that I don't have that I don't know you you and I have talked about not oh, obviously not for whiteness but we've talked about our own privilege with cisgender yeah or like, well I have it more so sometimes along the lines of like economic privilege yeah but then something I feel like I can always fall back on emotionally when it comes to that is that my family had to overcome so many obstacles to get there that I'm like fuck it we earned it like yeah. that that's like ultimately where I often yeah. land sometimes that it, it, it is like a little bit like like I need to be aware of mm-hmm. I need to be aware of the advantages that afforded me in life and in particular my issue sometimes, I'm glad you said this because it reminded me of something that I thought of and then got lost in the ether, but it's back again. Um, my issue sometimes is more along the lines of like, I was just telling my stepmom this the other day um, when I was down in Virginia that I will sometimes get frustrated with sometimes when I'm working with young people of colors who aren't quote unquote following the rule. Like, I know that for the most mm. part, there's a certain set of rules that you need to follow to have a certain kind of success. You can be whoever you want to be at home or do this or do that, but, like, it is unfair, yes, but the fact is there's a certain level of perfection. You need to be, like, better than everybody else to be successful as a person of color. And if you're a female, forget about it. Like, you need to be, like, oh, yeah. super awesome. You need to be perfect. You just, you just need to be perfect. You have no, you have no room for anything else, right? And then over, especially at my current organization, I really started to examine what that's about. Mm-hmm. And that's because that's my experience. And that's my parents' experience. And that's my grandparents' experience. And, okay, maybe what I should be focusing on is how do I, as an adult in this situation, who's already broken through to a certain level of success, and like leadership and already had a certain kind of economic privilege therefore I just happen to know certain people maybe I grew up with them maybe just because of the circles I operate in how do I help change the rules because I've already gone to the other side I want you to be able to be yourself and be successful now this is who I am I don't I know that I have a certain level of code switching, but I also grew up in a white neighborhood. Oh, God, we could do a whole episode on code switching. We could do a whole episode on code switching. I I think I see... Can you define the term just for those who might not know? Yeah, I'm hoping I'm defining it to 
correctly. Code switching is when um, people have different ways of um, communicating and behaving that are like more in line with like the white supremacy values of our culture generally. But that's how I'm thinking of it in this moment. But okay, I think a you... white person might do it like. Sure. Well, I mean, like a really small example is just like, like I talk to you differently the way I talk to like my trainees at work, right? Yeah. Like that's a code switch that I do just in, in work life between right. work and my regular life. Like, although, you know, what's really funny is like we talk to each other on this podcast the same way we talk to each other in life. Yeah, no, we don't code switch for this show. And I actually don't really think I code switch very much either. I have been told. Oh, I've heard your Erica, your Erica voice at work. Is it different? Oh, it is different. Mine's different. Mine's, I think, more of a shocker just because I'm such like a. What is it? How is it? Because I feel. Okay, we're not going <laughs> to. No, no, I really, this is actually really, because I, I feel like, I wonder if. I, that I feel that like, professionalism you're talking about plays out I feel like what you may be hitting on is like there's also Erica at work with the people who she works with every day who knows like who know me mm -hmm. and they're pretty much just getting like the same thing you're getting as opposed to like yes and now I'm going to a conference and you don't know who I am so yes. I'm going to I'm gonna be a little bit more professional mm -hmm. in this moment so no I hear what you're saying and that's probably um, why Erica is like uh, on the board of so many places and I am not. Anyways, we'll, we'll Erica's, Erica's skyrocketing over here and I'm just like cynical Katie in the corner. <laughs> we'll edit that out. Okay. Um, but I think about like when I think of code switching, I think of like the fact that if um, one of my parents, I don't want to call anybody out, if they pick up the phone, they go, hello, so-and-so. Yes. And then when you're like, hey, it's Erica. Like, oh, hey, what's up? Like, Total, like total voice change. Yeah. And before code switching with a term, I would call it like their white voice. My quote unquote white voice actually just is my voice. <laughs> but like some people in my family have two clear different voices that mm -hmm. they speak in. Mm -hmm. And depending on where they are. And for me, it's one, it's one and the same. Mostly, but I have been told by a past college roommate when they saw me with my family, that I do speak a little bit differently with my family. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what that is. What I don't that know. We'd like. have to go back to the I know, episode nine and listen. See, but apparently I speak a little bit differently with them. But my whole family calls me a valley girl. So I, I don't I don't know. But apparently I'm yeah, different Yeah, that's not that. your personality at all. Yeah. But I, I do think, though, that, yeah, I've been trying to focus my work now more on, like, how do I help dismantle those systems, mm -hmm. clear pathways, but also make sure that the young people I work with realize, at least before this month, <laughs> I don't know where we are now in anything in this world, but that so traditionally speaking, here are the rules you have to follow mm -hmm. to be successful. You can do that or you cannot and chart a different path to success. Mm -hmm. You know that might be a little bit tougher and I'd rather you be who you want to be. But I want to lay it all out on the table for you. So, like, trying to, like, balance those two things, laying it out on the table, and then how can I break down these systems? And, like, how can I clear pathways for these young people and create spaces in which they can grow and opportunities have been denied to them? Like, that's 
where I've been trying to like focus yeah. myself. But I had to recognize it myself. Like I grew up in a middle, upper middle class black family. Traditionally in this country, in order to have gotten that far as a black family, you have to have bought in to some of the system to a certain level. Yeah. You wouldn't have gotten that far if you didn't. Yeah. And so what I, I was taught these behaviors growing up. Like I didn't learn these in school. No one told me them. Mm-hmm. I watched my parents. I watched my grandparents. I watched my aunt and my uncle. And I just knew. And there are things I know that you can do in front of white people and you, that, or that you can do and you can't do in front of white people. There are ways that you can talk and you can't talk in front of white mm-hmm. people. There are slang terms that you can and shouldn't use in front of Like these were things that like my family like would say or, and it was all about like being pristine and pop, um, proper and not making people feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I can sometimes feel myself reacting when I see a person of color doing something you're quote unquote not supposed to do in front of white people. Mm. And that's something like um, like a church call, for example, like being like, yeah. "Well, like that's something you." That's for when you're with black people, like. And I don't know if anybody explicitly said that to me, but it was certainly something yeah. that I like. I knew, and so I'll see somebody doing it, but oh, and I'm like, no, Erica, no, that's okay, that's okay. I think whatever, just get over it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of a journey that I've had to go on myself too is like really examining um, how these structures have also influenced my life and my expectation yeah. for my behavior and the behavior for other people of color. What am I saying or doing? I mean, there have been lots of famous um, black people who have been criticized and called Uncle Toms and et cetera for yeah. saying that, you know, Black people need to do A, B, and C to be successful. And I don't want to be a part of that, but I do know that I learned some of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a way that you're dismantling white supremacy in your own body, right? The right. way you police other people of color. I mean, mm. the, like, I, I totally understand that. Like, when I started out working with the teachers in training that I did, like, eight, nine years ago, there was certainly like a level of professionalism that I was like, oh, this is what it is. And then I realized I was like, oh, no, that's me adhering to a code that. I don't necessarily agree with, but I just know that it's accepted in like the world of education and business and to get a job. And so a lot of the work we do now in the, in, in our program and the work that I work on is like, is yeah, is dismantling those like systems of professionalism or whatever you want to call it on the way. Yeah. On the way, on the path to a job, because like, uh, I don't know. There's so much to say about it. No, there is a friend and I were just talking about this the other day. I'm not going to say which friend, because then I'll be shouting out where we used to work. But we both used to work the same internship program. Mm-hmm. I stepped into the position after they stepped out of the position, but we worked at the organization at the same time, and we both used to run this program. And we just had a conversation earlier this week about things that we taught those young people around professionalism. Yeah. It felt very like exclusive and yeah. like, clubby, yeah. and you're like... Oh, that's so good. I was like, yeah, I know. I think about the other day, and it feels really gross when you think about it. But like, like I was a part of that. I said that. Yeah. I taught people that. Like, I did that. I, a black woman, taught people that. Yeah. And the thing is, I knew that it was it was true. The thing is, it was actually true though. In order to be quote unquote accepted and not have issues in our workplace, you needed to. For example, um, things that were on the list that we like would pull out specific examples of things that had happened. Um, somebody painting their nails at work. 
which I'm still not going to say if I, I don't think that's still. I still don't think that's a thing you should be doing at work. I don't, like, why are you painting your nails at work? Like, it smells right. terrible and someone might feel sick. But, like. Well, th- yes, there there are, are sensory issues. Oh, Rosetta's upset. Rosetta's upset. I'm it's sorry. I think probably because we're yelling. Or one of the things that we talked about, for example. <laughs> Rosetta's in the background. She wants probably to go on a You walk hate racism, to too, don't you? She's like, I don't see color. Literally. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) That is the one person who could tell me she doesn't see color. And I'd be like, all right. But one of the things we talked about, for example, a lot in that workshop with the idea of wearing headphones at work or being on your cell phone, which was more of an ageism thing. But we would be like, some of the older people of the organization won't be happy about that. So don't be on your cell phone in front of them. Mm. And you're like, ah, like looking back, you're like, Mm. Yeah. Mm. Ah, I used to say that to people, didn't I? Well, the Rosetta Bill, we have been recording for about an hour. Okay. And Rosetta is saying that it is her dinner time and that I better fucking feed her and then walk her. Yeah, I, I think just like ending like... Well, I, I, I just, I wanted to say that, like, we wanted to do this conversation for a number of reasons, and, and some that we've talked about today, and, and while we do go off topic some, this is, like, how we have these conversations constantly, pretty constantly, and, like, I don't know about you, but, like, the, like I feel like, like, our conversations grow yeah. a lot, and, like, you've, you've called me in, I, I like to say call in, you've called me in on some things that I've said before. And I feel like we learn and grow together. And, like, yeah, that's definitely possible. And the thing about going off topic, though, I would say we go off topic because it's so embedded into our everyday conversation. Yeah. And that's, I feel like, how it should be. Like, we yeah. talk about this, and then we, like, yeah. talk about the bachelor, and then we talk about this, and then we, like, talk about the relationship shit. Like, it should, it is not... It is not separate from how we operate together. Yeah. We constantly talk about and examine this, and I call you in, and sometimes you might call me in, like, on just things that yeah. happen. It's just a part of our, our relationship. But I think that's, like, I think that's a really good example of, like, how you can do this work and not, one, like, just, like, cancel culture in general. Like, stop canceling each other out. Like, how do we use moments of, like, technically failure I don't know how else to say it moments of of where people falter to call them in rather than call them out and to have these conversations more openly and like like I like you asked me at the beginning of this if I was uncomfortable talking about this and I was like no I'm not uncomfortable to talk about any of it because I'm sitting here talking with you and like this is just a conversation between us yeah we're gonna like broadcast it but it's again just another conversation that we're having between us and I think I think ultimately that's why we wanted to have that here because I think like that there's now music playing outside my apartment. <laughs> it's okay, guys. Welcome to New York City. Welcome to Harlem. I got the windows open. It's a beautiful sunny day. Quarantine We're- is over. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Wear your masks still, okay? Because there are bodies we need to protect out yeah. there that are more vulnerable than yours. So yeah. wear your mask. Mm-hmm. It's very important. But I think that like we wanted to illustrate that. Yeah. That you can have these conversations and still like like I, I know there are many white people in particular, and I like I hate I, I keep saying white people, but like I, I that's what I have to offer, and that's who I'm talking to, mm-hmm. right? And I know there's plenty of white people who are really uncomfortable about that and think that like if they admit certain things, if they admit where they've 
like been a party to racism in the past like that's the end of them that they're gonna get canceled and everything and like like yes that's the culture we live in in a lot of ways like especially liberal culture but also like yeah you have to good friends yeah Yeah, you have Mm -hmm. to do it you have to build your community around you and you just gotta you just have to do it if the other things that you care about and you truly want to see the get get sold well it'll take hundreds of years to solve it because it took hundreds of years to build it let's not that's not a downer. No, it's not a downer. It's not. That's it's not a downer. It's just, I think it's important for people to understand it took us a really centuries to get into this mess. And so, yeah, we need to start identifying steps and working on it. Like, mm-hmm. there's so many of these thoughts in people's hearts and minds that, like, that's, it's harder to change hearts and minds than it is to change a law. Well, so I think that's a good note to end on, right? We we talked, we sort of got into healing and, and restorative justice a little bit at the beginning, but like maybe there are some things that you could offer to POC folks. I certainly have some things that I could offer to the white folks listening or, mm-hmm. or especially in this, not in this time, non-black POC folks mm-hmm. that they could do right now. And part of that is healing. Like the the story I shared earlier with my students was I recognized in the moment and still to this day unpack as a moment of healing. Like my students weren't upset about the fact that I admitted it. They were, they were really taken by the fact that I was so vulnerable with them. And then they had a lot of questions for me and we grew closer over that year and our conversations became more and more open. And then they also could approach me and like ask questions of a white person that they couldn't like a white person on the street, you know what I mean? So like mm-hmm. it, be- it became a place of vulnerability and openness. And mm-hmm. so, and I think that's healing right there. Right. Mm-hmm. Just to like get it out there and like, okay, let's talk about it together. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say I'm pretty early in my journey of healing in general in life, the thought and the process and the idea of healing is very difficult to me, which I think it partially rooted in some of the things I was mentioning earlier. The fact that I'm from a black Southern military family mm-hmm. healing, therapy, reflecting, not necessarily a part of the culture, any of those three cultures. (laughs) But I think for me, the big thing that I've been taking away is resting. Just the idea of pausing and resting, especially if you've dedicated a lot of your life to the fight in various different ways. You need to rest so that you can keep going. And in fact, in our uh, capitalist society, resting can be an act of resistance mm-hmm. and taking care of yourself. Art, like pausing, just to like whatever is the equivalent of art to you, knitting, listening to music, writing, meditating. Oh, like, yeah. I've been meditating several been, times a day for the last couple months. I've been really trying to like get back into my artistic practice and like whatever that looks like for you, I think it's important to take care of, like take care of our bodies and to take care of our brown and black bodies right now in a world where it says that your brown and black bodies don't matter. And I also think if you have close connections in the black community, within your family, I'm thankful that when a lot of this started blowing up, I was actually with my family, which can, I'm, I'm close to my family, but I live away from my family. So sometimes when things are like this, it can be hard, but like they were like all there. We were like sitting around the dinner table talking about it, um, which is such a blessing 
to be able to talk about that with the people who raised you and the people you grew up with and also see how they've evolved in their thinking and conversation around it. Mm. And because even everything I'm saying now about how I grew up, I think everyone in my family has evolved from that. And so that's been a blessing too. So I think having those conversations, those people are pretty important. And I guess the last thing that has been helpful for me, it's just like, well, last two things. One is research. I feel like there's always stuff about our own history that we don't know. And I feel like I spent the last like five years really getting into the research of it. Like I knew things were screwed up. And I knew some of why, but there's some nitty gritties of like the logistics, the policies, the like whatever. Like I could, I really, I, I didn't know what redlining was until a few years ago. And redlining is the way that people keep, the, the really brief version is that like how people keep neighborhoods and schools se- segregated from each other. There are actually like, yeah, there are policies that are in place that allow that to happen. Yeah. So research, so that you, you feel it and you know it's there but it helps you understand and it helps you like when you do feel angry like to know what you're actually angry about and then the last thing is and this is me specifically and I do not say this for everybody I do have a lot of white friends it's actually been helpful for me personally to talk to my white friends to like I was saying to you before I want to understand I want to know I want to it just it's just when I feel angry, it helps me to understand, like, with the research, like, what I'm angry about. Like, what mm-hmm. am I angry about instead of just having, like, this rage or this frustration of this system, but I can't name it and I don't know exactly what it is. I'm like, right, okay, so you grew up in a Southern family that, like, had, that, like, taught you, like, certain things and that they knew and they inherited and some of them didn't think they were racist. Like, it really just helped me start to break it down and, like, really understand the mess that we're in so that I can start to figure out how I can move us towards progress. So those are the things that have been helpful for me in healing and restoring and understanding, like, what the fuck yeah. this all is. I'm going to quote 2016 Erica and say, I don't care if you're just coming into this now, just that you're coming into this, like, then join us. That's not exactly, I'm paraphrasing. Like, She's smart. Yeah. Yeah, she is. Yeah. So, well, that's why I liked her then. <laughs> <laughs> you said, I don't, I don't, you said at the time, you said, you, like, you didn't give a shit if people were just now joining as long as they joined. Yeah, I still feel that way. <laughs> well, we did have this conversation the other day, and you were like, oh, I'm kind of pissed at those people. But anyway, <laughs> which, yeah, I, you know, I would agree with. But, I mean, like, yeah, everybody, there there are journeys and, and different journeys, and everybody comes to things at their own realization. And specifically to the white folks who are listening, like, come into the journey. It's not that scary. And... Like, I don't know. I mean, certainly all the POC folks in my life have only, like, enriched it and helped me grow. And and I don't know. Like, yeah, uh, I think for the, the white folks listening specifically, like, obviously, if you don't have enough, if you don't have any people of color in your circle, like, please go out and find those people. Like, you, like it's I – th- I think, like, your perspective – 
if you're around, like if you're around the same culture constantly, your perspective's never going to change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that, that again, like what we were talking about at the very beginning, why so many artists left America. I mean, America is a culture in itself, and like I think everybody needs to leave America if they can. And that's a certain privilege of mine coming out, right? Like not everybody has that privilege, but certainly have the privilege of no matter who you are exploring other cultures within your city, within your state, within your country. Mm-hmm. Um, at different levels. And so I, I think listening to, especially POC folks at this time, is like the number one thing that you can do is just listen to your friends and hear what they have to say and just ask them how they're doing. But there are a number of other things that, that the white folks listening can do. There's certainly, go to blacklivesmatter.com. There are a number of toolkits for white people and how you can take part in some things. There's also a number of toolkits for POC folks who are trying to do healing or restorative justice. What is the name? Jane. Jane. She does anti-racism work. She'd been doing it for years. She does the blue-eyed, brown-eyed. Oh, I know who you're talking about. I can't remember. She does the blue-eyed, brown-eyed like thing with students in their school. If you look up, yeah, I know what her name is. Like, I can't remember her last name. Yeah. Yeah. Jane, just like Google, like Jane, blue Blue eye, brown brown eye. You'll find a whole bunch of video. And I've had a lot of white people tell me that totally, like, flipped their shit. Oh, yeah. You'll find, so basically what it is, is this teacher in, like, the 1950s did an experiment on her second grade class in which she would one day be like, okay, all the students with brown eyes have a certain privilege or whatever. And then the next day, she'll be like, oh, okay, now all the students with the blue eyes have a certain privilege, and the brown eyes are like, they automatically get deducted like 10 points or whatever. And then after that, she would ask, like, talk to them and break down how they felt. And then she would explain racism in the context with, with, within these, like, with what these second graders could understand. And it's really lovely. And it's fascinating yeah. when she does it with adults. She does it with adults, yeah. too. Yeah. And they, like... like she's the still children, doing it. Yeah, she's still doing it to this day. Like, children will be like, yeah, that's messed up. Adults are having, like, meltdown. Meltdown. Yeah. Like, just just, just watch it. It'll. I feel like it'll put and, a lot in perspective Well, so she's a great example. She's a white lady doing mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Uh, doing racial justice right there. And... Uh, so there, there's a number of things that Black Lives Matter, they have a number of toolkits for both POC and white, edu- well, not educators, white people. I just always, con- I always talk in the context of an educator. So, <laughs> And then also showing up for racial, racial justice. Uh, there's a number of books you can read. Like if you haven't read the biography of Malcolm X, please do. Also, like if you haven't read the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, there's also the, the, the documentary made out of it called 13th that I believe was put on by Showing Up for Racial Justice, that organization that's on Netflix right now. You can go yeah. see it. Directed by Ava DuVernay. Yeah. Also watch um, When They See Us by Ava. Yeah, Directed When They See Us. Directed by Ava DuVernay. Is that the one about the Central Park yeah. Five? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's one called Just Mercy. Show I haven't Mercy? watched that one yet. But Is it Just I Mercy? I think it just came. I think it just yeah, they're got making... re-released or widely re-released, something like that. Is it Just Mercy or Show Mercy? I think it's Just Mercy. Just Mercy. Okay. Yeah, that's widely available. There's a number of things that you can you can read, you can watch. Like, there's so much information out there. Uh, if you go to any of those organizations, if you go to the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, there's plenty of resources on their website. They're also they do trainings around the country about undoing racism, which you can attend and be a part of. So there's plenty of things that you can do, and 
if you are a person that inhabits a white body, you should be doing them. Like, that's it. That's that's the end statement. You need to be doing this work and constantly. Like, you can't just like attend one undoing racism workshop or read one book and be like, oh, I understand racism. I've decolonized my body. Racism that's not solved. how it works. Yeah, no, that's what they thought in the '90s and the early aughts. It didn't work. We all still see color. Admit Remember it. When we were told- <laughs> Remember we were told that like you you didn't see color and yeah. prejudice was a thing of the past and that's probably oh, that's like the second office episode which is really funny that they did that oh, back yeah. in like we, like 2005 or something yeah and they're like i don't see color yeah and it's the way i am colorblind like, <laughs> and i feel like it's like a millennial slash boomer I guess Gen Y, X, whoever they are, they're somewhere in there. We don't really pay attention to them, and we all know that. But, like, particular those two generations, yeah. really, like, uh, y- y'all see color. It's the first thing you see when you look at me. And that's fine. I want you to see it. My skin is beautiful. And it also says a lot about me and my experience. So, like, yeah, you see it. It's cool. And also, by saying that you don't see race, you are denying all the f- fucking, like, yeah. obstacles that Erica is facing that I am not all the systemic racism that she's facing that I am not that I don't have to deal with so like by saying you don't see color that's where it is yeah so embrace it I feel like that's my ending note like yeah if we don't it, confront it head on like there's gonna be no healing confronted and also like there are things about all of our backgrounds and cultures that are mm-hmm. difficult but also like really beautiful and unique and when we embrace it I feel like you know people from other countries people from different backgrounds mm-hmm. um, people of different sexual orientations of gender preferences when we really embrace it we can like some really cool shit can mm-hmm. happen mm-hmm. and I think it's beautiful and so I think we need to we need to heal we need to do the work and we need to learn how to actually like embrace our differences it doesn't negate what's unique and distinctive about you it's just mm-hmm. like we could all just like love all the things that are unique and distinctive about us and like very pie in the sky but it is especially as someone who statistically speaking as Katie likes to point out will probably have biracial children it is statistically speaking based on my dating life it's the world that I would want my oh, children yeah. to live in like that's that's what I want that's the way we're headed yeah that's like, that's what I want so like that's what needs to happen let's get there <laughs> yeah this all just sounded very like reading rainbow here like dora the explorer i don't know something what's the like we can all kumbaya age of aquarius god katie you're so cryptic (laughs) she's so skeptical i'm being positive we're all just molecules cutie okay Uh, thank you for joining us today i hope you drink a glass of wine while you listen to this we were yeah, look, what this is healing right here. This is the <laughs> we're also for promoting alcoholism on this show. <laughs> if a, if you're, you know, obviously no. Like if if alcohol is not your thing, like have a nice cup of tea. That's healing. Drink it with your bake. best friend. Or, or you know, whatever. Or have rosé. Or have rosé. Somehow we circle back to alcohol. But we love you all. We thank you for listening to us. Um, I personally want to thank everybody for the support and love they've given me over the last few weeks. Thank you for joining us. Black Lives Matter. I don't know if that's that picking up on the uh, phone. it's picking up. Okay, I'm pounding, my, I'm pounding my chest. Love you guys.